0: Today's program was organized in coordination with the Athenaeum's philosophy discussion group, which meets one Thursday each month to step back from daily routine to take some time to examine the whys and hows of life. The group casts a wide net, reading materials from the classics to current politics, and participants collectively decide on the monthly readings. The philosophy group, like all Athenaeum discussion groups, and we have over 20 of them, is open to all Athenaeum members. So please be in touch with Arnold or Jimmy at the circulation desk if you are interested in joining an Athenaeum discussion group, or reach out to one of our staff if you'd like to become a member of the Athenaeum. Our speaker today is Christopher Hamilton. He was educated in London, Cambridge, and Bonn, Germany, and is currently a senior lecturer in philosophy of religion at King's College London. He's been scholar in residence at the University of Salzburg and a visiting professor at the University of Trent. Dr. Hamilton is the author of five books, including A Philosophy of Travel of Tragedy, which came out last year, as well as numerous scholarly articles on Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Simone Weil, Primo Levi, Alain Rene, and W.G. Sibald, as well as on the aesthetics and philosophy of religion. Dr. Hamilton is as interested in literature and film as he is in philosophy and always keeps an eye on those neighboring disciplines when he's teaching and writing. This afternoon, Dr. Hamilton will offer an introduction to Nietzsche's life and work and reflect on his body of thought. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Dr. Christopher Hamilton.
1: Well, good afternoon. And um, I don't know if you're all here just because it's raining outside. I hope that's not the only reason. But anyway, at least you'll be dry for an hour. So thank you for that very warm um, uh, introduction. And it's a real pleasure and privilege to be here. So when I um, was um, asked to do something here, um, I was thinking what I would talk about. And I thought I would talk about Nietzsche, because he's a person, a, a philosopher, about whom I've been thinking for probably too long. But he is indeed endlessly fascinating. And so what I hope to do today is to pitch my remarks... ...at a level where those who know nothing about Nietzsche will be able to follow... ...and those who know a bit about him will be able to deepen what they already know. Uh, You will tell me, of course, at the end whether I've succeeded or failed. Um, And I will do two things mixed up with each other in a way. Um, One is to talk about Nietzsche's life for a reason that I'll give in a minute... And the other is to talk also about his philosophy, obviously. There's a nice picture of him. His dates are 1844 to 1900. But as many of you may know, he actually... Well, some people say he descended into madness. That's not the right word, really. He had a complete mental eclipse in January 1889 and spent basically the last 11 years of his life hardly uttering a word and certainly not producing any uh, philosophy. The reason for his fall into madness, if that would, if that's what it was, or this mental eclipse, is there were probably two reasons, one of them highly interesting, one of them highly banal. Uh, the extremely interesting reason is because he lived with a level of intellectual reflection, which is, in my view, hardly precedented in Western thought, certainly in Western philosophy. One reason for which is that, unlike many philosophers there is, in my view, no such thing as the final answer to what Nietzsche thought. His work is extraordinarily um, self-undermining in various ways. The, The moment he arrives at a particular conclusion, he undermines it and moves on to question it, then starts thinking again from another direction. And the consequence of that is that, although there are some philosophers who've tried to construct what one might call a Nietzsche's system or a Nietzschean system... In my view, view, that's likely to be doomed to failure because what one really has is this kind of relentless, endless self-questioning, which is one of the reasons why he's been so extraordinarily influential um, since he died. In his own lifetime, he was more or less completely ignored. Um, because he does, in fact, chart for us many of the movements of 20th century and now 21st century thinking, the way in which we've become deeply historicized, deeply self-questioning individuals and cultures. And Nietzsche really has it all from from that point of view. So the the interesting reason why he suffered this mental eclipse is because of the extraordinary intellectual pressure under which he lived and which he imposed on himself. The banal reason is that he probably had syphilis. um, And it may well have been from his only sexual encounter in his whole life, uh, which was probably while he was a student at the University of Bonn, uh, where he went to as a young man. Um, And in fact, one of the peculiar features of Nietzsche's life is um, a very... uh, Powerful absence of, of contact with women in any kind of erotic sense. Though he grew up in a house dominated by women, um, including this person, his sister, who was two years younger, as you can see. Uh, Nietzsche's own father, who was a pastor, died uh, when he, Nietzsche, was young, I think only four years old, something like that. There was also a, another brother who died, but there was also this sister, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Nietzsche. Um, and she was, they were very extraordinarily close. And uh, Nietzsche grew up in this family with his uh, mother, with a sister, and with various aunts. And I mean, we can chat about this in the discussion if you like. Um, but this is possibly one reason for the misogynistic aspect of some parts of uh, Nietzsche's work. At any rate, uh, one of the things that's interesting about this is, as I say, it's beginning to open up the question of Nietzsche's life. And uh, that's directly relevant to his philosophy uh, for the following reason, a very simple reason, which is that he says it is. A a book of his published in 1886, we'll come to this in a bit more detail later, um, called Beyond Good and Evil, has an opening section which is entitled On the Prejudices of Philosophers. And uh, amongst the many complicated thoughts he has in that section... Uh, is the idea that philosophers like to present their work as if it were, as it were, some objective truth independent of the personality or the life of any given philosopher or the particular philosopher in question. And Nietzsche rejects that view entirely. In fact, he says that hither, that it has become clear to him, he says that every philosophy written hitherto, and he includes his own in that of course, is a kind of unconscious personal memoir on the part of the uh, philosopher. This, of course, if it were taken, in, taken seriously and fully absorbed into philosophical practice, would radically change the subject um, because it would mean that a certain claim to final truth or final objectivity would no longer be possible in the way philosophers have often conceptualized it. So it's a deeply radical, very upsetting um, uh, thought, which very few philosophers have actually responded to. There was a huge amount of secondary literature on on Nietzsche now. Um, As I say, he was ignored during his life. But most of it does not deal in any depth with this question of the relationship between the life of a philosopher and his or her writing. But Nietzsche himself saw this in other philosophers and certainly legitimizes such a reading of his own work precisely because, as I say, he he says of of philosophers' work that it's a kind of unconscious uh, memoir. Now, Nietzsche's sister was extraordinarily important in his life uh, for a whole variety of reasons, one of which is this... um, (laughs) The, the, simply the closeness of the way they grew up, only two years' uh, difference in age. The other is because, as I intimated earlier, he was a profoundly lonely man, and even when he was getting on very badly with his sister, which was often, he had tremendous need of her, um, and his letters are often full of a kind of angu- this anguished need of his sister. But there's a very particular reason, in fact, why he... Um, fell out with his sister. And this is because his sister married a man called Bernhard Furster. And Forster was a rabid anti-Semite. And in fact, had the idea, uh, I won't bother you with all of the details, it's very complicated how it came about, but had the idea of creating a new Jew-free Germany in the Paraguayan jungle. Uh, not really the first thing that one is likely to come across as an idea, but at any rate, he, he had this idea. She married him, and they did, in fact, persuade uh, 14 uh, peasant, German peasant families to go out to the Paraguayan jungle with them to set up this new Germany. And this is a book uh, by Ben McIntyre here, which is about, uh, which, which I can thoroughly recommend. It's a fantastic read. Uh, I mean, it's bedtime reading and not just, uh, you know, not just for study. Um, it's an extraordinary um, account of his attempt, Ben McIntyre's attempt, to trace um, whether there were any w- people living from this um, group of uh, um, German peasants taken out um, in about 1886, something like that. Um, and indeed he found them. And the book, the book dis- discusses his, his trip there and his discovery of these people. And uh, it's an extraordinarily interesting read. However, uh, as I say, um, Nietzsche's sister, Elizabeth, was um, anti-Semitic, as I've said. And um, But the, the Paraguayan escapade was a complete disaster. In fact, Firster died out there and is buried out there. She came back more or less around the time that Nietzsche um, was losing his mind, and in fact, along with the mother, then looked after him. But one reason, one of the things that was extraordinarily important in this story is that she then uh, edited Nietzsche's works and indeed doctored some of his letters to her to make it look as if he shared the anti-Semitism that she had. And in fact, here you see this extraordinary extraordinary photograph of her. I think this is taken before the Nietzsche archive in uh, Weimar, which she set up, with Hitler. And she in fact um, she, she in fact died in 1934, I think, and had a full state Nazi uh, funeral. So it's so a most extraordinary story. and this led to Nietzsche having an extraordinarily bad reputation, of course, for all kinds of obvious reasons. I mean there was no question uh, about it that the Nazis did indeed use some of Nietzsche's some aspects of Nietzsche's work um, to support their own absurd ideology. Uh, Though, of course, they didn't need him as an excuse. They'd have done what they did without Nietzsche. Um, But she certainly helped in this insofar as she uh, emphasized uh, or, or, as I say, edited his work to make it look as if he was anti-Semitic, which he certainly wasn't at all. Some of his ideas are indeed very disturbing, but he certainly wasn't uh, anti-Semitic. The other person who is terribly important, of course, as I'm sure you will know in Nietzsche's life, is Richard Wagner. One aspect of which is, as you can see from the dates that uh, Wagner was born in 1813, he is actually old enough to be Nietzsche's father, and um, it's highly likely that um, Nietzsche was in search of a father figure, his own father, as I said earlier, having died uh, when he, the young Nietzsche, was was very young. Um, But they also enjoyed an extraordinary uh, intellectual friendship for a, a, a short while in which Nietzsche more or less became um, Wagner's disciples. I mean, Wagner actually was, as you know, the kind of man who didn't like anyone around him who wasn't a disciple. And uh, Nietzsche was one of his disciples. Um, But one aspect of this is that there was this extraordinary clash between these two um, intellects. And eventually, uh, Nietzsche broke with Wagner. Wagner, as you know, set up um, uh, his own... Opera house, I mean, he called these his operas uh, music dramas, a total work of art in Bayreuth. The first um, festival of which was a disaster in many ways, not least because some bits of the props were sent to Beirut instead of Bayreuth, <laughs> uh, which didn't really help uh, matters. I think, I think it was the neck of one of the dragons uh, ended up in Beirut rather than Bayreuth. But anyway, uh, <laughs> the mind boggles. Um, and, uh, but they had this incredibly intense relationship, friendship, what Nietzsche actually called a star friendship. And later in his life said he wouldn't have traded any moments of, of his life for those that he had with, with Wagner. But they eventually fell out, and they fell out for all kinds of reasons. I mean, there was this problem of the clash of these two enormous geniuses, these two intellects. But also, it, Nietzsche regarded um, Wagner's late turn in his work Parsifal, regarded him as selling out to Christianity. Of course, we'll come back to that. One of Nietzsche's most famous phrases is, God is dead, though he goes on to say, God is dead and we have killed him. Um, we may come back to that. So that was one. This, this is another of the extraordinary influences on on Nietzsche's um, life. In, uh, and one of the key themes that they share is the theme of greatness. And we'll come back to that. The other person who was very influential, both on Wagner and on uh, Nietzsche, was Schopenhauer, who similarly, during his life, had been largely unknown. Schopenhauer. Came from a generation of of philosophers who, like me, are paid to teach philosophy at university. Though he had a private income, um, and was he was extremely envious of the leading uh, German philosopher at the time, Hegel, who was teaching at Berlin. And in fact, on one occasion, Schopenhauer was asked to go and give some lessons in Berlin. And because he loathed Hegel and Hegel's philosophy so much, he put his classes on at the same time as Hegel's, uh, and so everyone went to Hegel's and didn't come to Schopenhauer's. Anyway, uh, there's a lesson in that, isn't there? But he was largely unknown throughout uh, throughout his life. Um, his great work, The World as Will and Representation, used to be translated into English as The Will and Idea, it was a, w- a work that he published when he was a young man and then continued working on uh, through the rest of his uh, life. Um, and he Hardly influenced any philosophers at the time, but he certainly influenced uh, Wagner. The other philosopher whom he uh, did uh, influence was a Nietzsche. And one of the things that drew Nietzsche and Wagner together was this shared interest in Schopenhauer. In Wagner's own case, incidentally, this was partly because Schopenhauer had claimed that the highest of all the arts was music. And therefore, the uh, composer of music is about the top of the pack. So, of course, Wagner reading this was no doubt... Um, flattered. Okay. That's a little bit about his life, and we'll come back to some of those things. So I want to um, give this overview of his philosophy. Nietzsche's philosophy is often um, divided into three periods. There's an early metaphysical, so-called metaphysical period, which is a period um, which uh, covers in part uh, this book, The Birth of Tragedy. Uh, notice, those of you who know German will see that the subtitle is Aus dem Geister der Musik, Out of the Spirit of Music, The Birth of Tragedy Out of the Spirit of Music. And this book is immensely influenced by Schopenhauer and uh, Wagner. In fact, the last part of the book really is simply a kind of eulogy to Wagner and the idea that tragedy will be reborn in the German-speaking world through the music dramas of Wagner. And the other influence, as I say, is uh, Schopenhauer, um, and it belongs to this first, if we go back to this uh, so-called metaphysical period, Now, Schopenhauer's metaphysics are extremely complicated, um, but one aspect of it, or the central aspect of it, and certainly the aspect of it that uh, was crucial for uh, Nietzsche at this stage in his writing, is uh, Schopenhauer's idea of the will. As I said, his main text is the world as will and representation. Representation is simply everything that we see and experience around us tables, chairs, other human beings, uh, the objects of our sense perception, the empirical objects that we see uh, all around us all of the time. But Schopenhauer has an idea that, at which he ultimately gets um, through the writings of Kant, um, a very important philosopher of the previous generation. He has the idea that appearances, things that we see as representations, are in fact representations of something. That thing that they're representations of, he calls the will. And the will is this kind of relentless, pointless, it has no teleology, um, relentless energy that runs through absolutely everything. That runs through individual human beings, it runs through tables and chairs, it runs through animals. Everything that we see is is a representation in one way of this one fundamental reality, which is the will. And the will has no purpose, as I say, it has no teleology, no goal. It just doesn't exist for anything. It just exists. But the consequence of that is that human beings live um, in a kind of illusion, the illusion that at some fundamental level we, for example, here in this room, are separate beings. At some fundamental metaphysical level, we are one. But, of course, human life is characterized by the fact that we don't experience it in that way. And one of the aspects of that is that we experience ourselves in conflict with each other in various ways. And this is a kind of illusion for uh, Schopenhauer, because insofar as I'm in conflict with you, that's only at the level of representation. At the deeper level of what we fundamentally are, namely manifestations of the will, we're one and the same. So that actually for um, uh, Schopenhauer, what this indicates is that human life is essentially pointless suffering and he's one of the very very few philosophers uh, in the western tradition to have had a completely pessimistic tragic view of existence i mean he completely rejected christianity though he thought what he was doing was in part um, with this notion of the will responding to some basic thought that he had from from buddhism and other eastern philosophies He's, he's basically the first western philosopher to show serious interest in in eastern thought so, um, one of the things that's very, very important then for, um, for Schopenhauer is this idea of the, the suffering of existence. Now, this fed directly into um, uh, Nietzsche's concerns, because as I said earlier, Nietzsche lived with this intense intellectual pressure, but he also lived... Um, uh, As I say, he probably had syphilis. Some people say he knew he did, some people say it's not so sure. But at any rate, he was extraordinarily physically ill for most of his life. At the age of 24, he had been appointed a professor, actually in classical philology, in classics, at the University of Basel in Switzerland. But he had to give this up quite soon uh, because he was so ill. He suffered eclipsingly powerful migraines that would leave him bedridden for days on end, stomach cramps. He had appalling eyesight. Um, he had many, many pairs of glasses to help him uh, read. And in fact, at that time, there was um, an early invention of a typewriter, which was in, um, I should probably have made a picture of this, but anyway, you can look it up on the internet. It's a, it's a, it's a round ball. In Germany, it's called a Schreibkugel, a writing ball. And he actually wanted to buy one of these. I think he may have had one for a while, um, in order to be able to write more easily because his eyesight was so appalling. Um, in fact, that was a fantastically inefficient device and forever breaking down. Um, so this is why contemporary typewriters, or keyboards, as we know, are flat and not round. Um, but at any rate, um, this experience, this idea in uh, Schopenhauer of... Uh, suffering fed directly into uh, Nietzsche's concerns. And in this metaphysical period, and in particular, as I say, in this book, um, The Birth of Tragedy, um, Nietzsche asks a very simple question, really, um, which is, why did the Greeks invent or need tragedy? It may seem an odd question, but of course, uh, what we do know is is that this is a new art form which uh, the Greeks, the Athenians indeed, uh, invented. And his question was, what does this tell us about Greek society? Now, of course, that's a question at one level is very, very, uh, it seems odd, but it is very common. We might ask of ourselves, what does it tell us about us that we are willing to spend so much money on... Well, I don't know what it's like in the United States. Baseball, football, soccer, you know, paying people, certainly in the United Kingdom, uh, some footballers are played, soccer players are paid, you know, between fifty and £250,000 a week to kick a football around. What does it tell us about us that we are willing to allow that to go on? Now, um, that's essentially the question he's asking. Why was it that the Greeks had this thing at all, this thing that we call tragedy and his answer is in part this question of suffering he conceptualizes in the birth of tragedy he conceptualizes the Greeks as peculiarly sensitive to the experience of suffering in such a way that they're likely to give up on existence I mean if life is just a veil of tears if life is full of pain and full of suffering is it worth a candle is it worth going on And his answer, very briefly or very roughly, is that the tragic theater enables the Greeks to face the reality of their own suffering by conceptualizing it on the stage, by seeing it represented, as it were, in a situation of um, safety, so that they are able to come to some kind of knowledge of their own condition, but live through it and accept it. And he actually indeed has a very there's a complex mechanism to do with the distinction he makes between the Apollonian and the Dionysian views on tragedy. We can say something about that if, if you like. The figure of Dionysus was very, very important to Nietzsche. But that's that's his basic idea. His basic idea is that the explanation for tragedy is that the tragic hero, by being represented on the stage, is the representation of these this Deep suffering or sensitivity to suffering on the part of, of Greeks, but they're able, as it were, to face this and come through on the other side. So that suffering becomes absolutely central to his whole um, way of thinking. Now, this is partly what we need to bear in mind when we think about his famous phrase, God is dead, which is from uh, much later work. And although it's often said that Nietzsche was the first To say this in Western thought or in German uh, philosophy, this isn't true. It was certainly said by Heiner at an earlier stage who did influence uh, Nietzsche. But at any rate, his thought there is, is this, that in a world in which we can believe in God, what we can believe in is a moral world order. And that involves a number of things. One of the things that involves is that essentially those who are good, those who are virtuous, those who are morally good, ethically good, in the end, will be rewarded for their goodness. And those who are bad, those who are wicked, those who are evil, will be punished. So that happiness and goodness join up, go together. The one is rewarded with the other. And those who are wicked will uh, suffer. Moreover, uh, part of that is, of course, the idea that suffering makes sense. It makes sense in terms of the relationship between happiness and um, uh, virtue. Whereas, in a world without God, without an agent to bring these, to bring happiness and virtue together, what we're left with is simply the brute fact that a person could be thoroughly morally decent, admirable, but suffer appallingly for no good reason whatsoever. It's just the way life is. And on the other hand, that somebody who's wicked and mean and spiteful and all the rest might flourish like a bay tree. And so Nietzsche is, part of what Nietzsche means by God is dead is this idea of a collapse of a belief in a moral world order of that kind. So that our lives seen from that perspective are simply sheer contingencies. There's no reason why I exist or you exist. It's not for anything. It doesn't serve any particular purpose. There's no special meaning or teleology. This, I'm sure you know this word teleology comes from Greek telos, meaning goal or aim. There is no. There is, history has no meaning from that point of view. So God is dead means much more than a rejection of Christianity. It means... That there's no such thing as this moral world order. There's no such thing as some kind of imminent meaning in life. There's no such thing as history have, having a meaning or having a sense. So that then the question, of course, of suffering becomes extraordinarily important. In what sense, if any, if I go through life suffering, or as we know, many, many human, millions of human beings go through lives of immense, immense awfulness, grinding poverty and lack of food and so on, It's what sense can we make of it? And Nietzsche's thought is that in a post-Christian era, we can't make any good sense of it. Um, And this, as I say, is what he means by God is dead. So he has this idea, but he has a further idea, which is that um, this is the only life we've got. Just the one life. There isn't any life after this. So that if we look at life and see it as full of pain and suffering, as his own life was full of pain and suffering and we're inclined to reject it, then we reject, essentially, the only thing we have. And this is why he has the notion of an affirmation of life in his writing. This is central to his writing. And here again, he's responding to Schopenhauer, because Schopenhauer said, because life is full of pain and suffering, the only correct response to it is to deny it. And Nietzsche, as it were, puts Schopenhauer turns him on his head and says, no, we have to affirm it, because it's the only thing we've got. And this is where we get this uh, idea of his eternal return of the same. This is a famous passage in a book of his called The Gay Science. Those who know German will know that it's die fröhliche Wissenschaft that has been translated as the gay wisdom um, or or the joyful wisdom. Um, But he imagines that you're... To put it in very homely terms, you're lying in bed in the middle of the night, wondering about the meaning of existence, and this little devil crawls into your bedroom and says, your life as you've led it hitherto, you will have to lead it exactly the same way again and again and again for all eternity. What would your response be? And Nietzsche says, well, of course, the first thing you'll think is, no thanks. No, <laughs> not, 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 you know, once is enough. And he says, but if you, can, if you can, as it were, pass the test of saying, yes, I affirm this. I'm willing to say, yes, I will live my life as I've lived it again and again and again in exactly the same way. Then you are an affirmer of your life because you're affirming everything, including all the dreadful things in it. It's a very abstract thought, but... We can put it another way and make it look forward rather than back. Suppose somebody said to you now, you have to lead your you're going to lead your life from now on um, in the same way again and again and again. So everything that you do from now on you will be doing again and again and again for all eternity. Well then you might have the following thought. Ah, actually I spend a lot of time um Wasting my time or being unpleasant for no good reason or being horrible or whatever it might be or just not doing things, not getting things done. If I now know from now on that I've got to go through it again and again, it's likely to make me think, "Okay, I'm going to reform my life. I will reform my life by no longer being like that. I will now seek, actually, to make the best use of, of the rest of the time that I have. So you can actually construe the thing as a forward-looking thing, as a kind of affirmation of life in that way. And that's certainly uh, one of the things that Nietzsche had in mind, the idea of affirming his own life, knowing that much of the rest of it will be uh, would contain uh, pointless uh, suffering. And he has this idea, of course, as he's very famous for this, of the so-called Übermensch, the... Um, some used to be translated as Superman, but for obvious reasons of cartoon uh, relevance, it's not usually translated in that way. Now it's normally translated as the Overman. And that character is, in fact, very sparsely described in Nietzsche's work. Uh, but insofar as we can understand who he is, and it, I think would be a he, I don't think Nietzsche had the idea that there would be Überfrauen, um, actually. Um, uh, the ubermensch is the person who can indeed affirm life in all its, as it were, flatness, without the um, transcendent um, affirmation from, from God or from Christianity or from religion. So he's looking at, for at the kind of, as it were, mythological figure who could respond um, in, to the collapse of value to the the death of God in the way that he thinks is the only reasonable response, um, given uh, our uh, current situation. So let's just go uh, back a bit. So so, so many of those themes are there in the birth of tragedy. They've developed out of that book. This is an early book from 1872, uh, which actually uh, completely destroyed uh, uh, Nietzsche's uh, reputation because it's the most bizarre mixture of Schopenhauer, uh, Nietzsche, a bit of, uh, sorry, Wagner, sorry, bit of um, classical tragedy, all mixed up in this. um, I mean, as I sometimes say to my students when I'm giving them supervision for a PhD, if you write something like Nietzsche wrote, you won't get a PhD from the University of London. This this fulfills no conceivable standards of academic rigor at all, which, of course, is one of the things that makes it so marvelous. but it destroyed his career because um, his students stopped. It was it was very badly reviewed um, for all kinds of for reasons that are obvious, given what I've said. Um, and he uh, his classes were very small. Students stopped coming to and Of course, he was devastated by this. Okay, so that I mentioned there the the metaphysical uh, phase. Uh, Nietzsche then, after this period um, of the birth of tragedy and a couple of other shorter texts, started to, as he put it, to cool off, um, and, and his main influence is at this stage, in a stage in which he sought for a kind of urbane acceptance of life. Um, and this is uh, with books which start with human all human. It's part of the later book, The Gay Science, that I mentioned. Um, there's also, indeed, a book which is my favorite book of Nietzsche's, which is uh, it's translated as Daybreak, and earlier translation was Dawn of the Day. It's actually one of the less known, lesser-known, but I think marvelous books. And the influences on Nietzsche here, in particular, were the French moralists. People like Montaigne, Montaigne, as you know, Uh, wrote a number, a huge number of of essays, literally from essay, the the French to to try, to attempt. Um, And along with Montaigne, this is one example, and also La Rochefoucauld, who's known in particular for his maxims. um, What Nietzsche was doing there was moving away from taking um, uh, German models of influence, so particularly, uh, as I've said, uh, Schopenhauer, And Wagner are moving much more to a a kind of French uh, model of existence. So you should think here of cafe culture, basically. Uh, You should think of a life that is urbane, that is accepting, that is kind of cool and unhurried, um, that is willing just to give a. Humans' beings are such silly, funny people, and you shrug your shoulder and walk away. Uh, Nietzsche, of course, actually was the kind of person who got fantastically angry and upset about all that, which is precisely why he was trying to use these these models of French um, thought. Montaigne, as those of you who have read him, will know that um, he isn't probably one of the most well-balanced people who's ever lived, Um, and that's what Nietzsche was looking for. Nietzsche was looking for a capacity at this stage to affirm life in this, as I say, very cool, uh, relaxed way. I mean, he was temperamentally and constitutionally completely incapable of doing so, but his own writing is actually an inspiration from that point of, from that point of view. So that, that's the, um, this extraordinarily interesting, um, uh, what I've called an urbane uh, phase of his writing. But with all urbanity, as I say, he himself was not, um, was not capable of that lightness lightness of spirit and his later writing is characterized by dynamite he actually says i am not a human being i am dynamite um, and this is a, a phrase this is a phase sorry which starts really with um always central to which is this text the genealogy of morals there's also eke homo which is a late and very bizarre autobiography um, if indeed it is autobiography it's a kind of an attempt to justify his own life to himself. But it's full of interesting things, you know, such as um, he tells us what he eats and drinks, and he says, for goodness sake, avoid German sausages, because they're." They're so heavy; they will sit in your stomach, and you won't be able to think properly if you eat German sausages. Uh, he had, in fact, been a vegetarian for a while, though Wagner convinced him that a genius needs to eat meat, and so immediately started eating meat. You know, so much for a free spirit. But anyway, there we are. Uh, so, so this this text um, belongs to this, you know, extremely energetic late phase of of Nietzsche's writing, um, as indeed. Uh, does this text, the Antichrist? But those who know German will know that Antichrist could be the anti-Christian as well as the Antichrist, and in my view, should be better translated in that way, because the book is um, a curse on Christianity, as he puts it, but nonetheless is extraordinarily warm in its picture of Jesus. The account he gives of Jesus indeed is such that he claims that to be to lead a genuinely Christ-like life is a possibility and that Jesus' life was, in many ways, utterly admirable. He he says he is almost, this is high praise from each, almost an affirmer of life. So he nearly gets there. Uh, At any rate, the the book, in my view, is certainly a very, very powerful attack on on Christianity, with some very controversial and, in some ways, very unpleasant thoughts in it. Um, But it... um, as I I say, also contains this extraordinary eulogy for the figure of uh, Jesus. So this is this late period, which is this highly um, um, energetic, dynamic um, thing. Now, I'll say something about that late uh, uh, period. So one of the difficulties in understanding uh, Nietzsche is understanding what he's attacking in attacking Christianity. And I think we can distinguish, I've already mentioned one, the Christ-like life, we'll come back to that. But there are at least three conceptions, I think, of Christianity which he runs in his text and sometimes runs together in his text. One is, I'm calling this, an antique conception. What I mean by that is that Nietzsche has in mind here a vision of Christianity which is... um, a vision of Christianity which um, revolves essentially around notions of sin, guilt, and punishment. There he's got in mind the idea that um, it's central to Christianity to think of us as fallen creatures, as creatures tainted by original sin, as creatures who can never fully by our own resources make of life what we want to make of it, that we will always be, to a greater or lesser extent, dependent on grace of course he's coming from a Protestant tradition which is likely to emphasize that even more than uh, say a Catholic tradition would Catholics in general have the idea that we can at least do something by the cultivation of virtue towards our own uh, redemption so here he's got and, and the other thing that's important is, the, is at this stage in, or in this aspect of his thinking about Christianity is something which in, in many ways is very, very alien to modern Christians, certainly in a European context. I'm not quite sure about uh, the United States. But, and that is um, an attitude to the body, the idea that the body is fundamentally to be rejected. Christianity, of course, has had a, is in many ways a um, schizophrenic religion insofar as it has two opposing thoughts at its center, one thought is that the material world is created by god is seen by god to be good and is therefore something that we should affirm and accept and enjoy that side is represented by montaigne who spends a long time talking about the body and sexuality and telling us that he likes scratching his ear and eating melons and stuff like that um that side, So there's that side, but there's also the side, of course, which sees the material world, and you find this particularly articulated, or um, the central example is uh, St. Augustine, which sees the material world as a kind of trap or snare. It distracts us from spiritual matters, so that the body and everything that comes with it, its needs, its needs for food and shelter and drink and uh, sexual satisfaction and other forms of, of pleasure it's a trap, it's a snare, and that what we should do to achieve or as part of our redemption or redemptive move in life is to reject the body. So Christianity has running in it, unquestionably, these, these two sides. And Nietzsche, in attacking the uh, antique conception of Christianity, is in large part attacking that conception which, is, which sees the material world as something to be rejected and sees us as sinful, wicked creatures um, uh, and one central example he gives of this, actually, if you n- know his writings is the writings of Pascal, who says you know the self is the self is despicable, human beings are despicable creatures so that 's one conception of Christianity that he has in mind and which he 's attacking the other is what he thinks Christianity has become in modernity, is what he calls gentle benevolence. This is the idea that Um, being a good Christian consists in not much more than being nice to everyone. And he thinks that contemporary Christianity has largely moved in that direction, that actually its substantive metaphysical claims, those claims about our fallenness, those claims about uh, the body and so on, these don't figure, uh, on this understanding of Christianity, don't figure in, in Christian minds very much. And that being a good Christian is is really just a matter of a is very close actually to being a good liberal citizen and taking into account other people's needs and rights and so on. And he thinks he, as I say, he attacks the first conception, the antique conception, for the obvious reasons. It's life, what he sees as its life-denying aspect. He attacks the notion of Christianity as being as involving this gentle benevolence simply because he thinks that it's not true to what Christianity really is. Because what he thinks Christianity really is about is leading a Christ-like life, which is essentially, to be or Nietzsche's reading, to be a highly to take seriously the Sermon on the Mount, the idea of infinite love infinite forgiveness, including of one's enemies, leading a kind of radically rebellious, revolutionary life on the edges of society, he thinks that that is the true form that Christianity uh, can take and that it's possible, as I said earlier, for anyone. So those are some aspects of what he's getting at in his his account, in his genealogy of Christianity and just to finish off i say something about that text the genealogy of morals sometimes translated as the genealogy of morality now this text is extraordinarily complicated um, and very 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 interesting and it sets up a kind of mythology and the mythology is between masters and slaves and this so the mythology ro- works like this he imagines a world in a, a world of masters these are people, and he's getting this largely, so think in, in this context, think of um, uh, the Greek uh, heroes, Achilles, Agamemnon, and so on. Think of that kind of figure from um, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and so on. And he's imagining a world of these people. These people are physically extremely strong, overflowing with self-confidence, um, wealthy, well-born, handsome. Many of this, by the way, he gets also from Aristotle, who said that the truly good life, which of course for Aristotle is not possible for women, is possible for men, but you have to be well-born and you have to be handsome and you have to have a deep voice and you have to speak Greek. So (laughs) very few people make the grade. Um, So Nietzsche's drawing on this source and imagining a world of masters like this. And to, to put it simply, he's essentially saying... Suppose somebody said to you, would you like to be like that? Your answer, if you're honest, is, well, of course I would. (laughs) So then he says, so how does it come about that so many of us deny that? And he imagines um, another group of people, and he calls them the slaves. And these are the downtrodden people about whom the masters don't give a damn. These are the people who are weak and cowardly and fearful, and they just can't make it in terms of this image of of, of the life of the masters. And they are filled with what Nietzsche calls, he uses the French term, ressentiment, a kind of relentless, uh, resentful envy. And they look at the masters, and they see the masters have basically got it really good. And they invent a new scheme of values. And that new scheme of values is a scheme of values according to which it's bad to be really strong and powerful and trounce other people as you go through life. And so they marshal what he calls a slave revolt in morality. Whereby we come to believe that actually the best kind of person is a meek, humble, self-denying selfless, non-egotistical person. And, of course, you can see the resonances with many of uh, things that, that Jesus says in, on the Sermon on the Mount. And what Nietzsche thinks, very roughly, is that we can chart through history these two forces. Now, some people read this text as basically a historical text. Other people read it as a mythology. I, I, I myself used that term earlier, and I'm inclined to... to read it in that way and I also read it therefore as a kind of therapeutic text insofar as I see it as essentially offering a challenge to the reader to what extent are you like a master able to let go of resentment let go of petty uh, meannesses and to what extent are you not like that and you're like a slave so there's a reading of this text as this kind of mythological therapeutic uh, text but the consequence of that is that what nature is trying to offer here is what one commentator has called a morality of strenuousness, strenuousness. Um, The idea being there that what it is to lead the good human life is to lead a life of relentless self-demandingness, where you take yourself and try and make of yourself the maximum that you possibly can. It's not about being humble and meek. It's about making demands on yourself. And Nietzsche conceives a group of people that he calls the higher types. And his examples include, bizarrely, himself. He wasn't actually a very good example of this. But, um, but Napoleon, Napoleon I, of course, um, Goethe, um, and various other uh, figures, mytho- in a way partly mythologized figures. But these are people who lead this kind of immensely powerful Confident, self-asserting life—a life full of strenuousness, but a life which is um, highly individualistic, not at all following what he calls the herd. And of course, this is a very offensive term, and he knows it so. And that, in the end, in some ways, is the final thing that he's wanting to to do for us: is to get us to be to be individuals, to lead this kind of life of immense self-concern and stop seeing that as a bad thing i've gone five minutes over i shall stop but i'm happy to take any questions if you have any